Good morning again, everyone. Take your Bibles, turn to Psalm 42. When you came in, you should have received a worship flyer, a bulletin, and in it, it has notes if you'd like to take notes. Thanks, Jonathan. So Adam won't be walking alone right there in the front row. (laughs) In your bulletin, there's a sermon note, Psalm 42, we're going to look at. We're in a series on the book of Psalms, and it's kind of challenging because preaching through the Psalms is like preaching through a hymn book. Uh, It is literally the hymn book of the nation of Israel. Uh, Remember, it's divided up into five books. It's composed of tons of different authors over about a thousand-year period of time. So we're trying to see some different themes within the book of Psalms. And last week, we looked at a psalm about a song of faith, where the psalmist was going through a difficult time, but he was focused on faith. And today, we want to look at part of uh, psalms that is pretty prevalent throughout the psalms. And these are psalms of people who are undergoing suffering. Songs of suffering have forever been a part of the human experience. Uh, just go listen to any country music station. Uh, songs of suffering are uh, songs where the human heart is expressing itself in its state of just looking for meaning, trying to understand what's going on. One of the most recent styles that's uniquely American grew out of the African-American history originating on southern plantations in the 19th century. Its inventors were slaves or ex-slaves or descendants of slaves. African-American sharecroppers uh, sang this style of song as they toiled in the fields under a really oppressive both heat and time and period. It's generally accepted that this style of music evolved from a combination of uh, African-American styles kind of blended together. African-American spirituals, chants, work songs, field hollers, revivalist hymns, and even country dance music were kind of blended in together to make this uniquely American style. During the 1900s, this style of music came into prominence, rising out of the Mississippi Delta to really permeate uh, the United States and to go all across the country. Uh, When you're oppressed, when you're suffering, when your wife leaves you, when your boss fires you, when your dog dies, you sing the blues. Two very early blues singers were a guy by the name of, and I love blues singers' names. Uh, You've got to have a great name to be a blues singer. This I'm going to show you two clips of one famous blues song, one you, you pro- I know you've heard, especially if you ever saw the Blues Brothers movie, which I'm sure nobody in here really did, but in case you did wander into a theater by accident and happened to see it, um, it was made famous in that movie. It's a song by Muddy Waters. That's his name, Muddy Waters, which I think is really good. Uh, it's called Manish Boy. And then the second one is by a guy named John Lee Hooker, who is very, very famous as a jazz guitar, I mean, a blues guitarist particularly. And his song is called Boogie Chillin'. And I'm just giving you a taste of these. You can go find these um, out on YouTube, of course. <laughs> Everything 
Sorry, that's all you're going to get of the, the blues. But if you want to see John Lee Hooker perform with the Rolling Stones, which is quite a combo, uh, the second guy, you can find that out there somewhere as well. The blues is popular because we all relate to tough times. And this morning, we're going to see that the psalmist sings the blues. Uh, he is going through a very difficult time in Psalm 73. Last week we looked, he was going through a tough time and looked to faith, but in Psalm 42, we want to look at what this psalmist does to try and cope with suffering in his life. Uh, just a little bit of background on this psalm. Remember the part of the psalm that's the introduction is actually biblical. I mean, in the sense of this is part of the psalm, is the introduction, who wrote it, what they wrote it about. And this psalm, I could really preach an entire sermon based on just this introduction. So let me move through it quickly. It says, For the director of music, a maskil of the song Sons of Korah. A maskil is a musical term that we really don't know the meaning of. In Hebrew, um, a maskil has to do with a song of wis- uh, a teaching about wisdom. So we're assuming that it was combined with some like sing a song of wisdom on a stringed instrument, but we would just be making up because we really don't know. But it's some sort of musical term that the Hebrews related to. They understood what it meant, and they knew the, the song. But the Sons of Korah is a whole interesting study in and of itself. If you remember back, and I encourage you to go look at it because this is not the sermon. This is just the intro. Uh, but the, the, back in uh, Numbers, Korah, Uh, was of the tribe of Levi. The Levites were the tribe that was set apart for the priestly duties. They're the ones who were given. All the descendants of Levi were given the duties of being the priest. They are set aside for the Lord. In the tribe of Levi was a guy named Korah. Korah and his children and descendants were given the specific task of 
wrapping up the holy sacred articles of the tabernacle. And, you know, the tabernacle was like a tent. It was the traveling church. Uh, it moved around. So the sons of Korah, they had the privilege, really, of wrapping the holy sacred articles and carrying them on their backs. But, but they were told that they could never touch them. So they had to wrap them without touching them and then had to carry them without putting their skin to the instrument itself, whatever it might be, the bowl or the, the um, candles or whatever the case may be. So they had to carry them around. And I mean, really, if you think about it, it's like, I don't know, it's like, um, you know, being the janitor or something where you, you, you get the, here's your whole job, you're going to be this, but you can't ever do anything else. This is the limit. Your ceiling is right here. Never move any further. And so at some point, Korah and some other people, they get tired of feeling like they're being bossed around by Moses and Aaron. Oh, I, all I ever get to do is carry this stuff. All I ever get to do is, you know, wrap it up and carry it. And so they rebel against Moses, basically saying, Moses, who do you think you are? We are, if you read in numbers, they really come back and say, we are tired of you. We're tired of you telling us what to do. How how do we know really that God has set you as the one in charge of us? So Moses says, I tell you what, why don't you get all your peeps together? Get all your people together, gather them around, bring some incense, burn it before the tabernacle. Me and Aaron, we're going to stand over here and you guys stand over there and burn your incense and let's see what God does. Let's see if God doesn't profoundly proclaim who he's chosen. So I guess Korah and the other people think, hey, this is a good deal. We'll, we'll see what God does. So they get their people around. And at some point, probably when Moses said to the rest of the people, hey, you may want to back up, was an indication that something dramatic was going to happen. Because they're burning incense before the tabernacle. And in number 16, it says that, that the earth literally opened up swallowed Korah and all the rest of the people who rebelled and then came back together. And do you know what the people had the gall to do right after that? They're still mad at Moses. As if that wasn't enough. So God killed another 14,000 of them after that. Took them out with a plague. Unbelievably, two of Korah's little ones survived. Um, two sons of Korah. The rest of his household was destroyed, but two, for some reason, God spares two. Eventually, over in Samuel, you'll see that these, the descendants of Korah join up with David and become part of his fighting force. And Korah's descendants were actually really good musicians. So that by the time that Chronicles comes around and Solomon institutes the temple you see that the descendants of Korah are appointed as chief musicians in the temple. Is this not a great story of redemption? I mean, think about it. Great, 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 great granddad rebelled against Moses. The earth opened and swallowed them. Fairly dramatic. And then, now, we're the chief musicians in the court. I, I, again... I could stop and preach this all day, but I want to get to the rest of it. But just to say, listen, God's redemptive purpose in your life is greater than your sin. He can do things. I mean, he is a God of love, a God of grace, 
a God of redemption. I mean, every single one of us are here this morning because of what God has accomplished in our lives. Not because of what we've done, but because of what he's done. And whatever has been done in the past can be overcome by his grace and mercy. Nothing is too difficult for him. This is a psalm of one of the descendants of Korah. A song of a person who's undergoing an incredible discouragement. He is oppressed. He is suffering. I, I wish I could say to you, by the end of this psalm, he's doing great. But this is one of those open-ended psalms where he's going to talk about his struggle and his depression and his difficulty. And, and it is a psalm of battling through, even though you may not know what the end story is going to look like. I want to read the psalm, and then I want to give you six ways that I see the psalmist fighting back against this suffering and spiritual depression. And if you want to know more about this, by the way, um, a famous preacher from the 1900s by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote an entire book called Spiritual Depression, which is based, it's, it's just a look at this one psalm. And so I borrowed from him, uh, but not near as eloquent as he is. So if you want to see more, I would read this book by uh, Lloyd-Jones called Spiritual Depression. Let's look at um, this psalm this morning. Let me read it to you, and then we'll look at these six points. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while men say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love, at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Lord, we pray this morning that you would just reveal to us your plans, your purposes, your direction. Spirit of God, speak to our hearts, and I pray especially for those who are here today who are struggling in the middle of suffering, maybe even depression, the God of truth, God of life, you would break through. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, here we go. Six things that the psalmist is doing to fight out of this spiritual depression. And by the way, we're starting at the end of the psalm and we're working our way backwards. So the first one is this. Seek out the reasons. Seek out the reasons. He says, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? Now, by the way, this is a little bit of an overstatement because he knows God hasn't totally forgotten him, but he feels like he has just been abandoned by God. So he's asking the why question. Why, why, where are you? Why am I undergoing this? It's not bad to ask why, because sometimes God may actually tell you why. Uh, and in many psalms, what we see is the psalmist is undergoing suffering because of his own sin, because of his own mistakes, because of his own decisions. And he'll come back and say in various psalms, God, I've sinned. My sin is always before you. Create in me a clean heart, O God, as David did. Or other psalms where he recognizes that he's gone off God's path and God has brought suffering in his life. There's, there's nothing to indicate that in this psalm. There's no indication that this, the guy who's undergoing the suffering has sinned in any way, yet he's still undergoing this feeling of the abandonment of God. Suffering... Suffering can come from many sources. Suffering can come because we cause the suffering. Uh, We cause the suffering. I mean, I could be easy to list off all the things. I mean, if, if you have spent way more money than you've taken in, then you're in a position called debt. Debt. And then if you want to seek God, you come to God and say, God, please get me out of this debt. Get me out of this debt. I'm not God, but if I were, I'd say, you got yourself in, get yourself. You know, at some point, we got to start making decisions that are honoring to God with our finances. We put ourselves in some holes. I mean, somebody can say amen, TV, just tell me here. Some holes, some holes we dig, in, not that TV's in debt, I didn't mean that, but some holes we dig in and of ourselves, and the psalmist recognizes that we're there and we need to repent and change direction. There are other times when the psalmist recognizes that he's under attack from the enemy. So another source of our suffering could be because the enemy is attacking us. And if so, if it's our own fault, we need to repent and return to God. If it's the attacks of the enemy, we need to pray against those attacks. But sometimes it's God just allowing things to happen in our lives to grow us up. Problems are like spiritual dumbbells that build up the integrity and muscles of our life in the spiritual domain. And if we didn't have problems, then we wouldn't keep working out, pushing against them. And sometimes, sometimes this is the hardest thing to say, God allows suffering in our lives to purify us, to cleanse us out, but also to build us up. It's great to ask why, but sometimes we may never get the reason why. Ask why, but then move forward. Move forward in some direction. Again, if it's your own sin, repent. If it's of the enemy, stand against it. If it's of God, say, God, teach me, please. Teach me what you want to teach me now so I don't have to go around this mountain again. Sometimes we get so focused on the why, though, we lose track of everything else. So there's a balance here. 
The last Sunday I was watching uh, the U.S. Open golf tournament with, with my boys. We were uh, watching, um, it was out in the northwest, Pacific Northwest somewhere, so it was on late. And anyway, um, Jordan Spieth is this 21-year-old phenomenal young golfer, and he was up by three strokes headed into the 17th hole. Par three, if I'm like confused, don't worry about it. The story will make sense in a minute. Anyway, he's up by three shots, and he hits this terrible shot off the tee. Ends up doing really poorly on the hole, and when he walks off the set, I mean, he has the tournament locked up. I mean, no one's going to catch him, but he blows it on the 17th hole. When he leaves that hole, he's now tied for the lead. Here's what I, I love about people who are really focused and champions. They, they, they have the ability to put it behind them and move forward. To not say, oh, you know, he could have beat himself up. Why did I hit that stupid shot off the tee? Why did I do it like that? I've just blown it. He went on to birdie the 18th hole, and as a result, another guy blew it, and he ended up winning the tournament. I mean, how many times in baseball have you seen a guy – a, a single, and the outfielder get upset about the single and let the ball get by him and get a triple. I, I mean, there's one thing to ask why. There's another thing to ruin the rest of our life by focusing on the wrong thing. We need to focus on God's plan, his purpose, and move forward. Second thing he does is he affirms the sovereign love of God. Affirm the sovereign love of God. Two verses here, Psalm 42, 8. He says, by day... The Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. He still, in the middle of his suffering, recognizes the love and life that comes from God. He also uh, recognizes that God is in control. Look at the way this verse is where he said, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Hey, Whose waves have swept over him? Whose waves and breakers have swept over him? God's. When he says your waves and breakers, this is a recognition of the sovereignty of God. He, He recognizes that God is in control. He sees God's love. But at the same time, he, he sees what God is doing in his life. He's being overwhelmed. Is it not one thing to, I, I could talk about these past two weeks in American history and the things that have been said, but here's the one thing, I, I, I don't know where God is directing us. I'm not real thrilled with things, uh, which is a vast understatement, but here's the one thing I know, God is still in control. The throne room of heaven is not unoccupied. God has not abandoned his post. He is still in control. What if that means the church has to undergo suffering in the days ahead? God is still in control. God has a plan and a purpose. His plans and purposes will not be thwarted. Now, I could focus on all the the ramifications of these decisions and who do they think they are and what are they doing, but I'm going to choose to look forward in the sovereign love of God that he's got a plan and a purpose here. And it is for the church to be the church. Could it be that the church 
is not being the church because we don't have to be. We've become so lazy. We've become so lethargic. It's not really incumbent. We can be Christian and worldly at the same time in the society in which we live. But maybe God is directing a path that will say, choose you this day who you'll serve. Affirm the sovereign love of God. He is in control. Third point, worship God no matter what. I don't know. I just want to worship God when things are good. No, the psalmist is saying, worship God no matter what the circumstances. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist is pleading to God as a God of hope. God, please, I love you, God. And this is like... In tears, he's crying out before God day and night. He's still worshiping God. He's singing his prayer. Sometimes the most heartfelt songs come out of suffering, as we looked at at the beginning of the sermon. These songs of faith, though, that we have come out as a form of worship. In 1871, The great Chicago fire decimated Chicago, and a man by the name of Horatio Spafford lost all of his business interest. They were wiped out as a result of the fire. Two years later, his business interest that he had started to rebuild took a further hit with a a great, really, uh, financial depression, oppression that had resulted as a result of the fire, So he planned to send his family to Europe where he was going to do some business and try and get his things back on, get his financial interests back on the ground. So he sent his wife and daughters ahead of him because as a result of the great fire of 1871, the zoning laws are all changing and he has to handle some things before he can leave. So as his, he sends his family on his head, his wife, his daughters, they're on a, a, a ship called the Ville du Havre, which is hit by another ocean liner, and the ship sinks, and his entire family, other than his wife, is killed. He receives this famous telegram from his wife, and all the telegram says is, saved alone. Shortly afterwards, as Spafford traveled to meet his grieving wife, who is in Europe, He was inspired to write these really, really famous words of a hymn. He asked the captain to wake him up when they were close to the spot where the ship sank and his daughters were killed. And in his grief, he writes this very, very famous hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. One of the great hymns of faith of the church. The last verse, we've changed the last line of. But listen, let me sing it to you again. Join with me if you want. But listen to the last line 
of the original last verse. It goes like this. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sighed. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend a song in the night, O my soul. Like the psalmist who had a song in the night, Horatio Spafford had a song in the night. A song in the night that said, in spite of what has happened here, I'm going to declare God is still God. It is well, it is well with my soul. Leads to the fourth point, which is this. Preach to your soul. Preach to your soul. Too often we listen to ourselves and our self-talk is negative and we agree with our negative self-talk. Are you with me? I mean, we all talk to ourselves. Oh, you dummy, you, you should have never done that. If you just done this or this or this or this, or, or you're never going to mount anything. You're never going to be able to hit that pitch. You're never going to be able to do that. You're never going to get out of this hole. We listen to this negative self-talk all the time. And instead, what we need to do is start to preach to our soul. You know, it's one, of the oldest, it's one of the oldest tricks of the enemy. He comes to us and he says, just like he said to Eve, did God really say? Did God really say you're forgiven? Did God really say he loves you? Did God really say? And we start agreeing with him. Yeah, yeah, I, I stink. I'm pitiful. I, I can't believe God loves me. Why would he love me? Look at me. Steve Futrick, in a book called Crash the Chatterbox, says the enemy's objective is to mess with your head until you have forgotten who you are. And he also says when lies are not confronting, confronted, callings are not fulfilled. You've got to confront the lies in your life. Quit allowing those lies to become a part of you and instead start to preach to your soul why Are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He starts to preach to his soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Take charge of the soul arena of your life, your mind, your will, and your emotions by preaching to yourself the truth of God's word. Here's what Martin Lloyd-Jones says about this passage. He says, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Don't you want to pause right there, by the way, and say, No, in that most of the unhappiness of my life is because of me? Yeah. Join the band. Most of the things that make you unhappy is because of what you're saying to yourself. Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? 
yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, Psalm 42 he's talking about, was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. And you may be saying, well, what's the difference? Well, one is you're agreeing with yourself. The other, you're agreeing with God. You're agreeing with God. You're beginning to preach to your soul. Why art thou down, cast down on my soul, he asks. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. We must learn to preach the gospel, the good news, the power of the gospel to ourselves. For instance, take a passage like Romans 8, 831. You know this passage well. And just start preaching it to yourself. You may say, look, I'm not much of a preacher. You're the preacher. You preach to me. Well, just take the word of God and start applying it to yourself personally. If God says something about you, just agree with him. Here's an example. Listen, self, if God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for me, how will he not also with him graciously give me all things? Who shall bring any charge against me as God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for me, Who shall separate me from the love of Christ? Start claiming the scripture for yourself. Not in a, I know, I know, I know. The prosperity doctrine has taken this stuff and just whacked it out. Well, the promise is you'll always be healthy and rich and your kids will grow up and they'll they'll all be good looking and you'll never have a rebellious child and... um, um, You know, I'm the only one who has all good-looking children. So... um, (laughs) There are no promises like that. But speak to your soul about what God is doing in your life. Claim the promises of God for you. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Then, remember past experiences. It's good to remember what God has done in your life. Remember back to the good times. When you're in those really dark times, when things are going really bad, remember the times when things were going great. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go up with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God. This guy was a worship leader. I mean, he's at the front of the crowd, leading the procession in worship, and he remembers the joyous times of shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throngs. Now, I I could stop here for a second and say, do not neglect corporate worship in your life. I think there's an element here that he's tapping back into what happened when he was with the multitude. When times of suffering jump on us, what is most of our tendencies? We want to get alone. We want to get away from everybody. We don't want to talk to anybody. We don't want to be around anybody. We want to just be by ourselves. That might be okay for a moment, but get back into corporate worship where the life of the group will, and it will remind you of who God is and what he's doing in your life. Remembering is a powerful, powerful tool. 
Um, another great hymn, and we, we do it here, is uh, that the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. There's that line in that hymn where it says, Here I raise mine, here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Um, it's an unusual term, the Ebenezer, and, and what it means is there was a battle where Samuel overcame the Philistines at a place called Mizpah, which is an important, but he, he, it was a miraculous victory that the Israelites had over the Philistines. And he, he set up this stone, and he called it Ebenezer, which means with God's help, by God's help. And so it's good at times to raise stones of remembrance in our lives, so to speak. So that when the tough time comes, because he wanted, Samuel wanted, when things were going bad for the nation of Israel, they could come back to the stone and think, some dad could say to his little boy, hey, this is, where, this is where Samuel and the Israelites defeated the Philistines against a much greater army. This is the kind of God that we serve. Sometimes we need those in our lives to remember. So whenever you sing that hymn in the future and it seems so odd to you that you're raising your Ebenezer, don't even know what that means, It's a stone of remembrance of what God is doing and has done in your life. Remember God's deliverance in the past. It will provide strength to you. He remembers where God was with him at different places as well. All over the nation, from the land of Jordan to the heights of Hermon to Mount Mizar, he remembers what God has done in his life. Final point is this, continue to thirst for God. Continue to thirst for God, verse 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? Thirst is a, it's a really powerful thing. I mean, it drives you to something. And a deer will, when it gets really thirsty, it'll forget everything else, and it's going to go for water. It's looking for relief. It's looking for something, because it knows if it doesn't get water, it's going to die. That's that's the feeling in our lives. If we don't get in the presence of God, we're we're going to die as the deer pants for water. Deer also run into water to get away from enemies, things that are chasing them. They'll lose the scent, and at the same time, most predators won't chase them in the water. My dad lives at a, um, on the St. John's River, and the river where he lives is about two to two and a half miles wide. Uh, so it's not like a little river. It, it looks more like a lake where he lives. I mean, it's a couple miles wide at the point. You can barely see the other side. You can see the lights. We've witnessed sitting on the dock where dogs were chasing a deer, and they'll come and jump in the water and swim for two miles across the river. I mean, I didn't even know a deer could swim for two miles. But they can. They can swim all the way across the water just to get away from the enemy that is chasing it. Listen, if you want, if you want security, if you want satisfaction, then you have to come to God. It's the only place... Security, satisfaction, relief can be found. And that, that really is an important question for you to answer today. What, what do you thirst for? Where do you find 
safety? Where do you find security? Where do you find satisfaction? Where do you find relief? <clears throat> and listen, we as Americans, we, we got sources. I mean, really, if you want some sort of relief, then you can find it. I mean, drugs, pornography, money, houses, cars, jobs. Good Lord, I could just go down a list. We have no shortage of things that will provide us temporary relief. And as I said last week, those things are like a beast that keeps feeding and keeps growing in our lives. So it takes more and more and more and more of those things to satisfy us. I say to the rock, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? I mean, this guy is being, he's got people in his life saying, hey, hey, where is your God? Where is your God? You didn't look like he's coming through for you. Our coming to God, though, isn't merely for relief or refuge. We're coming to God for God himself. He is our ultimate. And what we're thirsting for, though we may want relief or refuge, what we really need is the presence of God himself. I know in the hierarchy of needs, we need food and water and protection. But the ultimate end is to really know God and be in his presence. So how do we deal with life when we're undergoing suffering? By the way, I said this last week, but I'll say it again. You're either here today undergoing suffering, or you're here today and you're going to undergo suffering. So if this word isn't for you right now, it will be in the future. So maybe you can just... Keep these notes, put them away somewhere, and just save them for the days ahead. Because at some point in your life, you will undergo suffering. Ask God why. Maybe, maybe he'll give you revelation, and as a result, wisdom about direction. Affirm the truth that God is still in control and that God still loves you. Worship God no matter what your circumstances Preach to your soul and say, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Do you notice he says it twice in this psalm and then identically at the end of the next psalm as well? I mean, he's really, really preaching to himself. Remember the past times where God has come through for you and continue to thirst, thirst for God. Lord, I pray this morning that we will be a people who, though we may be undergoing suffering, though we may be going undergoing difficult and challenging times, God, we would say you are the one who delivers. You are the one who satisfies. You are the one who brings us to a place and a position of life. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what, I, I have to confess, I feel like I'm undergoing suffering in some realm of my life. And Pastor, would you just pray for me? Just lift your hand real quick and I'll pray for you. Lord, I pray for those whose hands are lifted right now all over this building that God, you would touch them.
they would sense your presence in a very real, a very dynamic way this morning. I pray that they would know that in spite of what they feel, you have not abandoned them. That you are still with them, you still direct them, you still love them, you still guide them. God, we thank you. I pray that Spirit of God, Spirit of all comfort, you would fill them up to overflowing today. Touch them. Fill them up. Give them wisdom and grace. Lord, we thank you. We bless you. We receive in faith the truth that God still loves us. We affirm your sovereignty and your wisdom and your grace. And Lord, we lean into your name today. We acknowledge that we'll never walk alone. Though we may feel like we do, we don't. And so God, may your grace prevail in our lives today. Lord, we thank you and we joy in you. In Jesus' name, amen.